This is episode 487 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the great things about the Lord is the fact that He is slow to anger and abounds in mercy. In fact, Lamentations say, Though the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do you know what that means? It means no matter how bad yesterday was, we can always begin again with our God tomorrow. Always. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that? If so, it means that no matter how great your sin or failure or disappointment or bitterness or an answered prayer you suffered from yesterday, it's just that, yesterday's news. And today it is all forgotten, all forgiven, and all put to rest. But there is so much more. So come, join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, sometimes in our culture, we have a tendency of seeing things through the eyes of the culture and not the way God sees them. As men, and again, I know more about men than I do women. I am a man. I've only lived with a woman. But uh, I do know that we are success-motivated, success-driven. And every time we move towards success, we have to define what that success means. And as I've been sharing with you the last couple of weeks, we often define success based on what the culture says. In other words, how big, how much money I make, how big my house is, how new my cars are, how many people answer to me or how many people look up to me, how many people that I manage. And so, I mean, that's how we view success. We, we don't view success by getting a smaller home or making less money or being demoted at work, because if that happens, other men especially will look at us and go, what happened? You mess up or something? It's always this climb upward towards some sort of area that we feel comfortable with. And if you're not a man, the fact is you, we still are put in a situation where we're graded continually. We make a post on Facebook, now tell me you don't do this, and then you want to go back and see how many people liked it. If only one person liked it, oh, I'm not very popular, nobody loves me, I might as well just get rid of it. If 50 people like it, then it's, wow, look, I'm something special, I'm going to post again tomorrow. Or how many friends we have on Facebook. You know, in your life you have, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 friends that you know, you know, a smaller group of close friends. On Facebook, you can have hundreds, thousands of friends, you don't even know who they are. And I've noticed this year, a lot of people are going through their friend list and they're deleting and purging friends that don't hold to the same political or religious values that they have. They were never your friend in the first place. They were just somebody you kind of connected with or, or some stranger says, you know, you're friends with Bob and I'm friends with Bob and I've never met you before, but I'll send you a friend request. And so we click it and we feel special. Or when we do something online, how many impressions does it have? Or the new word out in our culture is being an influencer. Well, this is an influencer on YouTube. Okay, what does that mean? Well, this person on YouTube, my grandkids watch this stuff all the time, these 17 or 15-year-old girls that do stupid stuff on YouTube. They have like a million views. They make $20 million a year, and they're influencers, and they're so loud. Have you noticed? 
This younger generation is so loud, they're yelling all the time. And you're an influencer, but the question is, an influencer for what? I mean, when our life is over and we look back on what we've done, what have we influenced, who have we influenced, and what have we pointed them to with our life? Now, this is a very successful pastor. Anybody know who he is? His name is Carl Lenz. Carl Lenz was uh, an heir apparent of the Bethel Hillsong kind of movement. He is the pastor that went to New York City and started this church, and it's this huge mega church, and he became very popular. As a matter of fact, he's Justin Bieber's pastor. He's the pastor to the celebrities. He's on Oprah, and he's you know, doing all the things that the culture would say makes him successful. Over the last couple of months, he was just fired from that church because he had an illicit affair, uh, and it just happens. He dresses trendy, makes about $500,000 a year, speaks in these massive mega church kind of buildings, and he is everything that some young preacher boy that has his eyes on the world and not on Christ wants to be. This guy is a success from the world's but sometimes God looks at success differently. Like this guy. Y'all know who he is? Neither do I. No idea who this man is. Never met him before. His name is Reverend Leland, or goes by Lee E. Stone. He's uh, in his 80s right here in this picture. If you notice the hat he's wearing, it's a one-way, Jesus is the only way, John 14, 6, hat, the same kind of hat that you and I would never wear because that's, that's just too bold out there and it, it doesn't match our clothes. This guy didn't even care. As a matter of fact, here's this picture of him and I'm not even sure he has his dentures in. Just a, just a, just a guy that the world views as a throwaway. The world views as somebody that never really amounted to much. Reverend Leland E. Stone, recently just died, matter of fact, died um, uh, on November 27th of this year. This is his obituary that was written in the uh, Winchester Star, uh, where it was from. Let me read it to you. First is just the bio. Reverend Leland E. Stone, pastor, teacher, mentor, and coach to many, and friend to all, passed away peacefully November 27th, 2020, at the age of 87. He was born July 2nd, 1933 to Leon Bertha Stone. He proudly served his country in the Navy from 1952 to 1956. He married Shelda Gilbert on October 15th, 1955, the year in which we were born. Together they had four children and operated a dairy farm in Cortland County, New York for 15 years. They were members of the Dresserville Baptist Bible Baptist Church in 1977, Lee and Sheldon graduated from Elohim Bible Institute and soon began a ministry of full-time Christian service in Virginia. He was 40, almost 40, when he decided to, to go to Bible college. Lee was the director of the Winchester Rescue Mission for 34 years. He pastored a small country church, Salem Regular Baptist, for 30 years. He volunteered as the girls' basketball coach at Shenandoah Valley Christian Academy for 20 years. Along with his cherished wife, he is survived by his children, and at least all his children. He's also survived by 
23 grandchildren, 43 great-grandchildren, and 17 great-great-grandchildren. In his obituary, a secular newspaper, here's what it said about him. Lee's legacy is one of serving God with the compassion of Jesus Christ. He was a light in the darkness, always pointing others to Jesus, offering opportunity and hope. Now, this man is a throwaway in our culture today. Pastored some little, I looked the church up, it's just a little bitty country church. And for 30-something years, never wrote a book, never was on focus on the family, never preached to thousands, never did anything, but just plowed faithfully the road that was laid before him. And this man is a success in God's eyes. It doesn't matter what calling we have, what God has called us to do. One of the things I hear all the time is, when I was, when I was young, I thought God was going to do great things in my life, but instead, he let me marry this man, and I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I'm raising my children, and all the drudgery that comes with that. And, you know, it's, it's, I guess this is just my lot in life. And so, therefore, I'm not successful as a Christian because I'm not a missionary. I don't sing with a beautiful voice. I'm not writing books or, or going to speaking at ladies' conferences, or I'm a man. And one day, I, I thought I would do wonderful things for God. But you know what? I, I had this job, and I've been in this job for so many years, and it seems like that's my entire life. And so, therefore, since I'm not doing something that the world recognizes, that I am somehow a failure. And that is anything but true. And if you hold on to that, as Justice was reading about Oswald Chambers, reading Oswald Chambers today, if you have a mindset of that, then what we end up doing is throwing aside serving God because that just is full of disappointment. And we embrace serving ourselves and our culture and making a lot of money because somehow that feels comfortable. And we begin to move from a life that may not get the words of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. 2020 is almost over. So what do you remember about it? Well, the coronavirus, all the lockdowns, the, all the opportunities we had being locked down and not having the pressure on us to perform job-wise and stuff of that nature like we've had in the past because of this virus or, you know, we, we've seen these political things that have taken place. Some people get depressed. Some people, it doesn't really bother them anymore. We, we kind of focus on things other than Scripture. I mean, what do we remember about 2020? Time of judgment. It may be that 2020 may be one of the, the best years that we've had recently. But I don't want 2021 to be like 2020. Do you? So what's going to be different? I know I've shared this with you before. In my multi-level marketing experience, one of, the, uh, one of the, the marketing gurus said, if your business is not where it should be and you want it to change, here's a vantage point or, or here's a truth that I want to share with you. If things are going to change, you've got to change. It's you. It's not them. It's not the circumstances. It's not my past. If you do the same thing today that you did yesterday, but expect it to be different tomorrow, that's the definition of insanity. 
that if things are going to be different tomorrow, you have to change. You have to put the time in. You have to make the effort. And so this week I've been looking at the book of Lamentations. Anybody read it recently? Pretty depressing. Pretty depressing book. As a matter of fact, it's kind of marvelous when you study it, but it's on its surface, it's pretty depressing. It follows Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, for 40 years, in the 52 chapters of Jeremiah, is telling his country, telling the people that he loves, that unless you change your ways, unless you quit holding on to idolatry, unless you put God first in your life, unless you repent of your sins as individuals, as the government, as a nation, then you're going to get wiped away and think terrible things are going to happen because God uh, God is going to chastise us. And he warned about the Babylonian captivity. And nobody wanted to listen to him. As a matter of fact, every time Jeremiah would raise his head, the king would throw him in a terrible place or the the, the culture at that time would put him down because nobody wants to hear about coming judgment or kind of the terrible things that are happening. But it came to pass. Babylonians came and they besieged Jerusalem for 30 months. For 30 months, those armies were encamped around Jerusalem, slowly strangling Jerusalem, kind of like Titus Vespasian did back in AD 70. And little by little, the walls began to to crumble. And when the day finally came that the walls were breached and the Babylonians were able to go in there, they were angry, they were frustrated. 30 months we've sat back here and they slaughtered millions of people. They desecrated everything. They grabbed a huge segment of people and dragged them off to captivity. We know as the Babylonian captivity. And it was a horrible thing that happened. The book of Jeremiah talks about its coming. The book of Lamentation is an eyewitness account of it actually happening. He's lamenting all the things that are going on. He's he's crying out to the Lord. I knew this was coming, God. I knew that you promised it was coming, but it's hurt so bad to see this happen. What can we do? It's a five-chapter book, and there are five lamentations in it. First chapter talks about the devastation of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Chapter 2 is somehow uh, Jeremiah is trying to explain the Lord's anger against his people. Chapter 3 deals with hope. Chapter 4 details the, the, in, the, the small segments of God's wrath. And of course, chapter 5 talks about this remnant and the prayer they have for restoration. But when we get to to looking at, like we talked about small-time pastor, when we start looking at the the macro, the overall makeup of this book, it's really amazing. Chapter 1, 22 verses. Chapter 2, 22 verses. Chapter 4, 22 verses. Chapter 5, 22 verses. What is that, random? Chapters 3, 66 verses. 22 times 3. Why? Well, chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 and even chapter 3 are acrostics. In other words, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 each begin with each of those verses begin with the Hebrew letter. In other words, if it was English, it'd be like apple, boy, cat, dog, and it would basically lay this out. It's not just random laments. This is a book designed by the fingerprint of God. 
And so we have an acrostic in chapter 1, an acrostic in chapter 2, we have an acrostic in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, it's not an acrostic, but it's still 22 verses. Well, what jumps out to me is chapter 3. Chapter 3 is not 22 verses, but chapter 3 is 22 verses times 3, and if you'll study that, you'll find it's also an acrostic, but the first three verses are the first Hebrew letter, and the second three verses are the second Hebrew letter. And so what it does, it draws our attention to to what's going on in chapter 3 more so than chapters 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. So I'm looking at this. Chapter 3. And I am rather shocked. Again, chapters 1 and chapter 2 talks about all the terrible things that are going on. Look at, for example, just verse 21 of chapter 2 leading up to that. Young and old lie on the ground in the street. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered and not pitied. Jeremiah is watching this take place in his nation. You have been You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me and the day of the Lord's anger. There was no refuge or survivor. Those whom I have born and brought up, my enemies have destroyed. So there's nothing but this crying out of pain and anguish at the loss of what's going on in Jerusalem until we get to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, something changes. Now, as I'm reading this, again, teaching you a little bit about that. As I'm reading this, I notice that in the first 18 verses, the word that jumps out the most to me is the word he. Look at it. you see it? It's like in every verse. He, 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 he. So I'm circling those and I'm connecting those together because there's, some, there's something going on here. I don't see it laid out this way in chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 4, chapter 5, but in chapter 3, there's a a pointing to the fact that there's a he and that he is God who's, who's causing all of these things to take place. Let's begin in chapter 3, verse 1. Let me just read this to you. Jeremiah speaking, I am the man who has seen with my own eyes affliction, which means misery, oppression, extreme pain and discomfort. And I've seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. Well, what do you mean? God is bringing this about on his people? Absolutely. He, God, has, has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me. How often? Repeatedly, time and time again throughout the day. And then we have all these he passages. He, God, has aged my, has aged my flesh and my skin. God has broken my bones. God has besieged me and surrounds me like we're being surrounded with bitterness and woe. God has set me in dark places like the dead long ago. God, he has hedged me in so they cannot get out. God, he has made my chain heavy even when I cry and shout. God shuts out my prayers. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. And the context here is back to him. God has been to me a bear lying in wait. That's from Amos. 
God, he has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. God, he has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and he set me up as a target to shoot his arrows at. Verse 13, he, God, has caused the arrows of his quiver to pierce my loins. Literally means my heart or the seat of my emotions. I have become a ridicule to all my people. Their taunting song all the day. He, God, has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. And the imagery here is eating like grain that has fallen on the floor because there's no food as the city's being starved. To eat it mixed with gravel and crushing your teeth. He has covered me with ashes. And then instead of being impersonal he, there's this accusation, this pointing, which personal. It's no longer he, God, has done this. It's you. You have done this. You, verse 17, has moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Now, it's been a while since I read something about a group of people that are suffering this bad. And this is a godly man here that's witnessing God's bringing his wrath out that he prophesied about in the book of Jeremiah for 40 years on these people. They, old people suffered, innocent people suffered, young babes suffered, everybody suffered. And God said, and, and Jeremiah says, it's you who did this, God. You brought us down. You're trying to correct us. You're trying to punish us. You're trying to bring us back into a vibrant relationship with you. So what do I do? What happens when my life is so full of failures and mistakes and disappointments with God that I have made vows that I've gone back on, that I promised him. I swore that I would never do these things again, and yet I do. I make these bold affirmations to him in my quiet times of prayer about how I want to center my life around you, but I don't. I mean, what happens then? After years of failure, all of a sudden we decide it's not even worth trying anymore. So our New Year's resolutions, assuming we make one, are just something fleshly rather than spiritual. But year after year of failures, we just give up on making resolutions. We give up on ever drawing a line in the sand. We give up on ever trying to be different. We're just comfortable as six or sevens or eights or four or fives rather than striving like we once did to be more like Christ. Because of all these things, you've broken my teeth. You've Blocked my way. My prayers don't even seem like they go to you anymore. So instead of repenting, I'm not even going to pray. Because God, you're a hard God. You're a tough God. You're always pressing me down with your knee on my back, it seems like. I can understand Jeremiah thinking that way. And see, we get to verse 19. Watch what he says here. He's now remembering his afflictions, afflictions and his roaming. It means my homelessness, my wanderings, the wormwood, the bitterness, and the gall. My soul, even though my flesh is decaying, my flesh is in pain, my flesh is suffering, but my soul, the, the part of me that is my 
heart, mind, will, emotion, volition, my soul still remembers how good you are, still remembers how wonderful you are, and sinks within me. It means to bow down, to be humble, that I'm even in, the, even in the midst of your chastisement, even in the midst of all my failures, I remember how good you are and that your love lasts forever. And I, I'm humbled by that. This I recall to my mind, how good God is always. And therefore I have hope. And here's what the hope is based on. Through all of this, the Lord's mercies, because of his mercies, we are not consumed. Punished? Yes. In trials and tribulation? Yes. In sufferings? Yes. In pain and loss? Yes. In our dark night of the soul or our dark month of the soul? Yes. But because of his mercies, even during a time like this, we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. Do you know what the word compassion is in the Hebrew? Its primary definition is that of a womb. It's talking about, matter of fact, four times it's actually translated womb. The compassion that a mother has for her unborn child Still in her womb is the compassion that God has for us. Even with our sin, even with our disobedience, even with a lifetime of failure, his compassions fail not. His love as a father or a mother to the unborn child in the womb fail not. In what way? Verse 23, we know this primarily because of the song we sing, not necessarily from the context we find in Scripture. They, his compassions, are new, are fresh every morning. Not every other morning, not once a month, not once a year, not occasionally after you come back from some mission trip or conference, but they are new and they are fresh Every single morning, each and every morning, all mornings. When you wake up and you open your eyes, everything of the failures or everything of whatever you beat yourself to death with in the past remains in the past. Because when you embrace and you wake up in the morning and take that first breath, that his mercy and his compassion and his love for you, in spite of what you did yesterday, are fresh and new every single morning. Every morning that we wake up is an opportunity to start again, to start fresh, to, to embrace him for who he is. Do you know why? Because great, much Many, mighty is his faithfulness to us. His faithfulness to us, to us is not based on our faithfulness to him. If so, I would be lost. But his faithfulness to us is based on his character. Great is his faithfulness. So how do we become a success in God's eyes? It's by getting our eyes off the success of the world and embracing him. Verse 24, the Lord, him, 
My relationship with him is my portion. A portion is a part that's allotted to you. It's a share. It's what's given to you. If it was a family situation, it would be your inheritance. And what we have a tendency of doing is trying to achieve our portion here. And what Jeremiah is saying in the midst of witnessing this destruction of everything he's ever known, this obliteration of the entire culture being taken away into captivity, something worse than I can possibly imagine. He says, none of that matters. What matters is that my share, my portion, my inheritance is God, that he loves me, that he cares about me. Because we are not consumed because of his mercies. His compassions fail not, and they are new to me every single morning, no matter how unchristlike I acted the day before. Therefore, because of that, I have hope, trust in him. Trust in him. So if what I read to you is true, then how do we respond to his compassion and his mercy and his grace on this last Sunday in 2020. When we look back on what we did or we didn't do or we should have done or what we shouldn't have done or the time we've wasted or the time that we've redeemed and we look back on that, are you filled with, there you go, Lord, I, I offered this to you. Just help me grow even closer to you next year than I grew in 2020 or are we disappointed and ashamed and frustrated because it never seems to get any better? And so if we're not careful, we'll get to the point that we'll quit trying. How do we respond to this? Can God still love someone who spends so much time condemning themselves? The answer is yes. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation including self-condemnation. If God will not condemn us, who are we to condemn ourselves? Are our standards higher than his? There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you are in Christ Jesus because of Christ. It's his action, his election, his choice of you. As a Christian who did not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so... Again, how do we respond to this? And if you will, we'll close by looking at Romans chapter 8. Two of the uh, sections of, of God's Word that has had a powerful impact in my life is Romans chapter 8. And the other one is the song that Levi sang today that came from uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him, remember it? Who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us in the church to all generations. But Romans chapter 8 lets you know, as we begin to embrace this new year, how God truly feels about you. Failures or successes, it doesn't matter. This is how God feels about you. Question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, no one... How about circumstances? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or the sword? That's exactly what 
Jeremiah was seeing in Lamentations. Shall those things separate us from the love of Christ? After all, for your sake, Jesus, we're killed all day long. This is from the Psalms. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. It seems like the world just grinds us up. And sometimes it feels like as pain and suffering comes our way, and probably will get worse, that the God, you have abandoned us, but you haven't, we're not separated because of these circumstances for the love of Christ. Because even in all of these things, tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword and all these things, we are present tense. Not we were, not we will be, but we are more than conquerors through you, Christ, who loves us. Therefore, I am persuaded. I'm going to live my life this way. I'm fully assured. I'm convinced. I am profoundly convicted that neither life nor death, angels or principalities, or nor powers, the spiritual realm, nor the past, nor the present, nor my fear of the future, nor height or death, nor any other created thing. And by the way, everything is created other than God himself. Any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, I would like to end this year as a church in a way that we can begin next year as a church more on fire for him than we ever have been before. And the best way for us to do that is to participate in the Lord's Supper, but to view it as our renewing our wedding vows to the one who called us out of darkness to be his bride. Amen?